All right. Well, welcome uh, to you know today's frontline fundamentals. Uh, we're going to be talking about protecting the worker, uh, which is based off David's book um, and also his column in IP Magazine. Uh, worker, you know, like he said, feel free to use uh, the chat you know window if you got questions. At the end, there'll be time to to answer those. Um, and then, um, yeah, so. We're gonna kick it off. So David is the director of professional development uh, at IPI uh, at Utility Business Media. Um, he's the author of Frontline Leadership, The Hurdle, Frontline Incident Prevention, The Hurdle, um, in which the series is based off of uh, and his column in the in IP Magazine. Um, to give you a little background, there's a little confusion, but UBM, Utility Business Media is the parent company, which puts out Incident Prevention Magazine. And then we have the uh, Utility Safety Conference and Expo. We got the one coming up here in fall in San Diego, California, uh, which will be nice and warm uh, for a fall conference. So encourage you to go over to utilitysafetyconference.com and uh, check it out and register. Um, and then also UBM um, manages the Utility Safety and Ops Leadership Network, which owns the CUSP credential. We also have the utility fleet professional uh, publication, and then also our education wing, which is IPI, which is what uh, Frontline Fundamentals is under. All right. All right. So thank you, Nick, uh, for that. Thank everybody for being, being here. I'm excited about it today. We're talking about the art of safety. And when we talk about the art of safety, uh, we're really talking about, I, I feel like in the world of of today we've gotten really really good at the science of safety things like fall protection um just the way we protect ourselves think about how easy it is and all the tools and equipment we have for us to identify hazards now think about if you're working in a confined space and all the monitors we have and whatnot and then think about the quality of the protective equipment we have and whatnot and the way i like to explain that is given the predictable nature of hazards and we understand what hazards are going to do, why is it then that people get hurt? And I think a big reason for that lies in maybe us not understanding the art of safety as much as we should. And that's why I wrote the book. That's why I write the articles in Incident Prevention Magazine. That's why we're all here right now. And so this is a, a series of six. We started talking about leadership. C5 safety leadership is going to be important as we talk about, especially the word caring as we go through the presentation today. Uh, the hurdle of discounting human factors as opposed to leading people, not robots. And today's focus, protecting workers rather than trying to please systems. And the, the key thought for today is to lead and protect people rather than manage robots and please systems. And so let's talk about what that looks like. And in doing that, I want you, there's a lot of words up here on the screen, but in terms of human performance, if you studied it, you know the definition of human performance, P equals B plus R, performance equals behavior plus results. And that's gonna be a huge focus today is how much we tend to focus more on results than behavior, which is not to say results aren't important, but let's, let's look at these two incidents and I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you, I'll summarize them. Angel gets hurt. Right. I mean, these two things happen on two different days in two different locations, but it, they're doing exactly the same task. 
and they do exactly the same thing, which is cut themselves with a knife. The difference is Angel puts a butterfly Band-Aid across his cut. And so if you're familiar with 1904, the record keeping standard, you know that's a wound covering. So that's not an OSHA recording. Gavin goes to the doctor, he gets four stitches, which is a wound closure, which makes it the dreaded OSHA recordable. My question to you to start, and I really want you to think about this question, at your organization, how would these two injuries, incidents be handled? And maybe even a better question to think about is, how would these two employees be handled? And I've seen too many cases where, again, it's the exact same task, exact same behavior, two different results, if you will. And in a lot of cases, you know, Angel, I've seen on extremes where he may even be rewarded because he prevented an OSHA recordable. And at the same time, Gavin punched. And my next start, so from a investigation standpoint, which one of these incidents at your organization would be investigated? And from a corrective action, disciplinary, coaching, feedback, whatever you want to call that, how would these two employees be handled uh, differently? And I think this is a fantastic example of exactly what we want to talk about today, how happy we are to please the system. In other words, not having an OSHA recordable pleases the system. But if we look at protecting workers, Gavin and Angel did the same thing. And we should probably, there should be some form of at least coaching and feedback or whatever to prevent that incident from happening again. And far too often, I find that we just base things on results alone. And as long as we please the system, we're happy. And we miss a lot of opportunities to improve both individual employees and our safety programs as a whole. So I wanted you to think about that to kick things off. And I think it's probably fair enough to say, and I agree, hopefully both are investigated, but probably the OSHA recordable is going to be the one that gets the most attention in this case. And there's reasons for that. And especially if you're a contractor and other things, and I get all that, but is our focus on the system, the numbers, the results, or people? And our focus decidedly should be on protecting the work. So how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we focus more on protecting the worker than pleasing the system? And I want to give you some examples of that. And unfortunately, as with that incident there that we just talked about, some of these things are far more common than others. But if you look on the left, you've got pleasing the system and what it looks like when we're focused too much on pleasing the system. And if you look over towards the right, protecting the workers. So we've got safety with the goal of compliance. Compliance is not a bad thing, but it should decidedly not be our goal. That's the starting point. Versus safety is a fully integrated core value. Do we view safety as a cost or an investment? Training is a great example, right? Are you happy? Do you consider if if we've checked the box and everybody's training records and they've done all their required training, that obviously pleases the system. We've got good training records. We've got a training metrics. We've done some training needs and we have put people through all the training they should go through. Training decidedly is not a bad thing, but part of the training process, if you really understand that needs to be training, evaluation, coaching, and feedback. 
And if you're familiar at all with the, the work of Donald Kirkpatrick, for instance, his four levels of evaluating training. Most of the time we stop at level one is, and level one is just at the end of a class when you give everybody the little bubble sheet scale of one to five. And those aren't bad, but really what they tell you is, did I enjoy the last hour? Did I enjoy this day, this two days, however long the training class was? And maybe did I learn a little something? Level two would be taking it a step farther and giving some kind of practical or written in the form of a test or a quiz evaluation. And a lot of us get there, and that's good. Level three is where we actually go out and watch people work after training and see if we've reinforced what needed reinforcing and we've corrected anything that needed correcting. We actually evaluate people doing their work after training to see if it was effective. And then level four, which is really hard to get to, is return on investment for the organization. And I'll invite you to look at the very last one. And I think this is maybe the best example that probably resonates with a lot of us is job briefings. And I'm not necessarily talking about how job briefings are conducted right now. I'm talking about how they're evaluated. How it, it pleases the system. Really think about this. 1910-269 tells us the job briefing must be conducted every day before beginning work and as conditions change throughout the day. We all know that. I've seen too many times where somebody goes out to evaluate a job briefing and just literally looks at a sheet of paper or a, an iPad or whatever it may be, and the job briefing was done and everybody signed it, check the box. We're perfectly happy with that. What we don't know is the quality of the job briefing, the discussion, the uh, if, if you're back to, to leadership and communication. Did it result in mutual understanding of a safe work plan? And so if you really want to evaluate the, the way I like to say it, that job briefing is a sheet of paper. And this is, I don't even know if this is a true statement that I would imagine over the course of time, it may have happened. But here's what I know. Paper does not save people's lives. Documents do not protect workers. The conversation, the discussion, the hazard identification, us understanding where we are, how trained and prepared we are for the job, how we're going to protect ourselves from the hazard we identify. The mutual understanding gained there in that discussion is what protects workers. That is what saves lives. And just too many times we're happy with, and there's nothing wrong with it. I've seen, you know, whatever positions it is, a general foreman, supervisor, manager, B, VP, depending on the structure of your organization, where they require all of their folks in the field to take a picture each morning of the job briefing and text it to them. Or, you know, some people have even fancy systems that allow you to upload them and whatever else. Nothing wrong with all that. Again, all that tells you is there a sheet of paper that exists. I know a company a couple of years ago, uh, an employee got hurt and OSHA came to investigate. And if you've ever been through this, you know the first two questions, most of the time regulatory agencies like OSHA are gonna ask are, can I see your training records for everybody involved? And can I see your job briefings from you know that morning and maybe the week before, the month before, whatever it is, depending on your re retention policies. And got to looking at the job briefings and, and this is, a, I kid you not, this happened. What they found was they had a really good job briefing that morning. 
and they had a really good job briefing the morning before and the morning before that and the week before that. And literally for the last month, that crew or one person from that crew had photocopied the job briefings with their signatures and left the blank date blank and was literally just writing a new date. There was no discussion, no conversation. They showed up every morning. They already had their job briefing done. They just went straight to work. And yet the whole time that was going on for months leading up to that incident, this organization was perfectly happy because why the system was pleased. A job briefing was documented every single morning for this particular crew. Now, I don't expect anybody to take for the takeaway from this. You can't go out. You can't be with every crew. You're not going to understand. But if we really want to evaluate a job briefing, the thing that we have to do, at least on occasion, is either be there during the job briefing or if we show up two hours after the job briefing or in the afternoon, whatever it may be, ask some questions. Ask folks on the crew what they talked about during the job briefing, how they contributed to the job briefing, what their role is, some of the hazards they identify. Pick a hazard on their job site and say, how are you protected from this hazard right now? That leads you to understand the quality of the conversation rather than just be happy that a sheet of paper was filled out. And the last one we'll pick from this list, and uh, just as another example, there's a lot of really, really good tools that help us with things help us with things like observations, help us with things like job briefings, help us with things like incident investigation. And in, in, in today's world, there's an app for that, right? Or a computer program. Nothing wrong with those things. But I have seen and heard of cases literally where we're doing an incident investigation. Go back to, I believe it was Gavin earlier. So Gavin cut himself with his knife. He got the stitches. It's an OSHA recordable. We're going to investigate it. I have literally seen times where we pull up our software system that helps us with the incident investigation. We never talk to the employees involved at all. We fill in the blanks. The system spits out some kind of report about what happened. It, with our help, identifies what the root cause of it was. And then with a little input from us, puts in some corrective actions, things that need to happen in the future. We didn't learn anything, but we're perfectly satisfied again because we pleased the system. We made our software happy. Is that going to prevent recurrence in the future? And most of the time, the answer to that is no, absolutely, it's not. We have, and, and what's really interesting, I, that's the way I say, how good you are at human performance, how good you are at incident investigation, how good you are at corrective actions post-incident. The real easy answer to that is, does that incident happen again? So if you're having recurring incidents at your organization, part of the issue may be in this whole concept of, is our goal to please the system or is our goal to protect the worker? And it gets worse as you get into the host and contractor kind of relationships. And if you're a contractor, you're doing your incident investigations to please your customer and the system and give them the report and some corrective actions. Or is it your primary goal to protect the worker? Now, I want to state very, very clearly, if you're a contractor and you're working for a customer, you have to please them. That's, that's part of it. If in today's world, uh, we need to prevent all injuries and we don't want to have OSHA recordables. So my point in saying pleasing the system is not to say, if you just look at the list we're looking at right now, 
Safety should have the goal of compliance. It just can't stop there. Safety absolutely does cost money, but I hope we view that as more of an investment. Are we focused more on incentivizing, for instance, zero recordables? And we all know what happens in that world. Uh, if you incentivize zero recordables, at least for a while, your incident rates and whatnot will probably go down. And sooner or later, you'll learn the hard way that that was probably from lack of reporting. And so if you're gonna incentivize anything, if you're gonna encourage people to do anything, it's encourage them to report more. And then when they do report, don't focus on trying to generate the perfect little report in our software system or whatever, focus on corrective actions that are gonna protect people. So that's the concept of pleasing the system versus protecting workers and what the goal of each individual involved and the safety program as a whole is. And so let's think more about then, given that, what do we talk about? What does it take to protect the worker? And in doing that, I, I wanna go back to leadership for a second. And in my first book that I wrote, I, I really like this example of organizational culture from caves. So in caves that there are a couple of different structures. You've got things called stalactites, stalagmites, and speleothems. And I hope I said those words correctly. And quite honestly, I hope the diagram you see on the screen right now is even right. I'm not a geologist. But here's what I know if, if you read about these things. Stalactites hang down from the ceiling. Think about a top-down organizational culture. They form very quickly from water dripping and they are hollow and they break real easy. I want you to think about that in terms of culture. That's not really what we're talking about today, but I think this is a great lesson. And we're gonna come back to cave culture in just a second to talk about how to protect workers rather than police systems. Stalagmites bottom up, right? As, as opposed to the stalactites, stalagmites take longer to form, they, they're more solid and they don't break as easy. But the interesting thing about that, and I think this is just such great imagery, is that thing called a speleothem, where those two things meet in the middle. So the concept of management commitment to worker-driven safety. Just a quick little blip about leadership there as we think about leadership. But protecting the worker, protecting the worker. Cave culture, going back to the cave, C-A-V-E, care about people. If you remember, and that's why these series is structured as, as like it is. So it started with the art of safety and we list some hurdles, challenges, things that make safety hard. And then hopefully we list the run-up because the whole concept and the reason the books and, and the, these articles and this series are all titled The Hurdle is track and field, hurdle. If I stand at a hurdle and I just try to jump over it, that's almost impossible to do. But if I get my run-up right, it becomes a whole lot easier to get over that hurdle. And it's all about the run-up. And so as we list hurdles, lack of leadership, we need to have run-ups, which in that case is C5 safety leadership. Those five C words are competence, commitment, caring, courage, credibility. And I won't go through the whole list right now, but I'll say this, in that list, competence, commitment, courage, uh, caring, courage, credibility. Caring is in the middle. In other words, everything we do should revolve around that. If I truly care about somebody 
And we limit our definition about caring too much in safety to just preventing harm. And so people ask the question, is it correct to say that if you are safe, you would be compliant? It's an interesting question to think about. Here's what I do know is the opposite of that is not true. If you're compliant, that doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. Think about a overhead distribution crew working on the side of the road and they have set up their work zone and work area protection exactly perfectly. They are completely compliant with everything that the MUTCD and whatever state and regulations and counties and cities, I know it varies. They've got their work zone set up exactly like it should be. The cones are spaced right. They got all their signs out, flaggers, all that stuff. That is a warning device. If you look at the hierarchy of control, that work zone actually provides those workers on the side of the road exposed to all those hazards from the public and traffic and distracted drivers. And, and I've seen cases where the, one time somebody had like a, a diabetic seizure, I guess, and then went into a coma while they were driving, passed out, let's just say that, and uh, ran into the work zone, which was set up perfectly. So if you are safe, you are probably compliant. But just because you're compliant doesn't mean you're safe. And that is, again, it is, it pleases the system for us to be compliant. It protects workers for us to be safe. And I hope you understand the difference between those two things. And far too often, back to caring about people, we de our definition of caring about people is limited towards, I don't want you to get hurt. I'm preventing harm. And there's nothing wrong with that. That, that is the most important half of that equation. But to truly care about people also involves wanting to make them better and encouraging their growth. And if our motivation starts with those two things, protecting people from harm and systems from harm to a certain extent, but we're focused on people right now, protect from harm, encourage growth. When I go to evaluate a job briefing, I'm not just gonna look at the sheet of paper. When I'm doing an incident investigation, I'm going to talk to the people involved and get down to what they and I together can determine what the root cause of it was. Heck, maybe even involve them in helping develop some of the corrective action. Safety always works better when people are encouraged to protect themselves from hazards rather than forced to follow rules. Really think about that. That is a, such an important concept that we missed. Safety always works better when we protect people and encourage them to protect themselves from hazards rather than forcing them to follow rules. So this concept of hate culture starts with care about people. Eight in case analyze incidents. And I can't stress here uh, the importance enough of what we mentioned earlier. You have to encourage reporting, which is one of these things here. Because if you only look at the things that are typically investigated, meaning the OSHA recordables, you've got a very, very small part of the picture. If we get good, honest, near hit, good catch, near miss, whatever you call it, and we, we have a a lot more reporting that goes on, we can start to see trends. We can start to analyze the whole entirety of the data set rather than just a small setup. So the, the, these are almost out of order because encouraged reporting is last, but uh, there's no particular order of these except to say care about people probably should be first. But for what incidents you know about, including near hits, near miss, near hits in the, the incident we started with, 
Gavin's was an OSHA recordable. Angel's was not. Hopefully we learn about Angel's and we analyze that incident. Again, analyzing it for all the causal factors, uh, do a barrier analysis to, to determine if there were uh, either protective things that should have been in place that weren't and or that were in place that didn't work like they should, and certainly get down to the root cause, the root cause. Um, value safety, V, value safety. There is a huge difference. Most safety programs pleasing the system are designed around being compliant, and whether we realize it or not, we make safety a priority. Now, I'm not a big fan of getting into the, uh, the battle of words and safety is a priority versus a core value and all that. Here's what I know, though. Priorities change based on circumstances. Core values do not. If something that's a core is, is a core value to me, something that's always important to me, it really doesn't matter what situation or circumstance I'm in. I'm always going to do it. Uh, a real simple example of that, but really think about this as an example of a core value. And a core value should be care about people. Safety should be a core value. But it is, for a lot of reasons that I won't get into, a whole lot of it is benchmark. I, I like to benchmark against successful people and try to do the things that they do. So one of the most successful organizations in the world and some of the most successful people in the world are Navy SEALs. And if you've ever heard Navy SEALs either read some of the books they've written or listened to some of their podcasts or heard them do presentations, whatever, almost all of them start with the concept of making your bed each morning. And the first time I heard that, I, I thought that was kind of silly to think about, but the way they phrase it, it's your first victory of the day and it sets your day up and, and all that aside. So for various reasons, making my bed became a core value. Now, that's really easy to do, let's say like when you're at home and there's maybe some kids there you're trying to set an example for, maybe a spouse or a friend or parents or whoever you live with that reminds you to do it, however they remind you to do it. It's kind of easy in that situation to make your bed, but what if you're traveling and you're by yourself in a hotel room? And it's a true statement for me. Value by myself in a hotel room, unless it's the last day, because obviously the maids are going to change the sheets and whatnot. Uh, I make my bed before I go to do whatever business it is that I'm going to go do. So it's an example of no matter what situation I'm in, that's something that's important to me and I'm always going to do it. If safety is limited to being a priority, if whether we realize it or not, lead people, not robots, we view people as robots and want them to work out of habit patterns and discount their feelings and human factors and all that. It's really easy to create a world where safety is a priority. It's important now. Think about uh, in, in our industry, and it's a good time to talk about this, uh, hurricane season, storm season, all that sort of stuff. Folks, power goes out. And you tend to see a very prevalent attitude of safety is the most important part of our job. We say that it's a priority, that sort of thing. The second people's power goes out, that's out the window. And the, the main number one priority now has become get the power back on. And again, there's a balance. It is extraordinarily important for us to get the power back on. Absolutely. That is a priority. Matter of fact, we could call that a value. But what we can't do in that process is sacrifice safety to do that. If safety is a core value, it's always important. If safety is a priority, it's sometimes important. If safety is done for compliance, we settle for 
the work zone I talked about earlier on the side of the road, or I settle for, I've got cut resistant gloves on, therefore I can't get hurt kind of thing. So really important to understand what it means to actually value safety and for the organization as a whole and for each individual to value safety and to value people. You get those, those words here, you think about how we define caring about people and how we define valuing safety, those two certainly go hand in hand. And as I've already mentioned, the E here in this concept of cave culture, encourage reporting. You, in my personal opinion, and I think I could probably, if I wanted to do a lot of studies and research that would back this up, but I wanna I want stress right now, this is my personal opinion. The two best ways or the two best indicators maybe of an organization or a team's culture is number one, how many near misses and near hits get reported? And number two, how people react when somebody goes to a job site observation. You hear the term psychological safety a whole lot in today's world and make it safe for people to fill in the blank. In this case, make it safe for people to report. And I talk to people all the time, pleasing the system. How's your near miss system? How's your near miss report? And they pull up their computers and they show me all in their safety manuals and on every bulletin board and everything they've got posted anywhere. It says, you were encouraged to report near misses, near hits. You were encouraged to, to tell people. You were encouraged to stop when unsure. You're encouraged to do this. And in every break room you go to on, on half the trucks, there are, uh, Sometimes physical suggestion boxes, sometimes QR codes where folks can scan and go report whatever they want to. Theoretically, it's anonymous. And then you ask the question, how many do you get? And guess what? Almost every single time I ask somebody that question that has this in their mind, perfect reporting program, the answer is zero or the answer is one or two a month or not many. And so are we pleasing the system? In other words, we've got a program designed, we've done training on it, we've got documentation. Or are we actually getting reporting? And is the reporting we're getting valuable? So as we think about this hurdle of pleasing the system, and as we think about how do we focus more on protecting workers, I think that if we just remember this concept of cave culture, specifically really just if you care about people, the rest of it takes care of itself. It really does. If you're trying to prevent harm and encourage growth in all your employees and all the folks on your team and yourself, you're going to do these other three things. But that's a great way to think about it. And in uh, the book, and, and there's a workbook that actually goes along with the book. This is part of the workbook. And this is just a real simple, and I'd like for you right now, as it's on the screen, just to read a couple of these lines and think about, <clears throat> number one, how would you answer these things? And number two, if we went out and surveyed 100 people at your organization, so to speak, how would they answer these things? And let's just, you know, uh, the first one is so, oh, it, it presents so many problems. Back to, I said, two, two best indicators of safety culture, one being how people react to do a job site observation. If we're trying to please the system and we've got a group of people, call them auditors, observers, coaches, whatever, and the system requires them to do 15 observations per week and the system requires that in each one of those observations they find and correct at least one thing that was wrong 
Guess what the result of that's going to be in the long run? Probably people distrusting anybody in that part that's part of that process. But if we do that process, we'll get a heck of a lot of good documentation and it'll look like we're really, really doing a good job of observations. We will please the system. And I'm not saying any of these things, again, are bad. I'm just saying they shouldn't be the focus, right? So think about that. How often is it never sometimes or often where observers are required to find something wrong during job site observation? This will blow people's mind. Requirement to find something right and provide positive reinforcement for doing something right. I know that sounds like a radical, crazy thought, but it's human performance principle four. People achieve high levels of performance because of support, reinforcement, and encouragement that they receive from leaders, peers, and subordinates. So we could take that one principle of human performance and say, hey, we really wanted a good observation program. We should get leaders, peers, and subordinates to observe each other and to absolutely address the things that need to be wrong, but sometimes talk about what went right. I've already talked about job briefings, but uh, some of this can get to more the professional level, but a lot of a lot of organizations now do observations in the field. My only, my only comment here would be this. If you read number three there, uh, you've got in a performance observation, that scale of one to five where one's really bad and you're getting ready to get fired and five's really good. And how often do you sit down and, and somebody just literally tells you, hey, David, you're doing a fantastic job. We love everything you're doing, but you're getting all fours here because no one gets a five. Well, what's the end result of that? We pleased the system. We did our performance review. Does that help us protect the worker? Does that help us understand how we could become better safety professionals, better leaders, better followers? We're, we all have those roles. We all have roles in safety. Um, four and five, great. I mean, our safety program incentivizes zero re recordable injuries. We mentioned earlier, you, you just, you should, and you should want to achieve zero injuries. You should have zero recordable injuries. There's nothing wrong with that being a goal. But the second you start incentivizing that and only that and only the OSHA recordable injuries, guess what the workforce is going to perceive that you don't care about them. Back to cave culture. If people perceive you don't care about them, nothing else you do matters. And then number five, really what is the goal? And the only way you can honestly answer what is the goal of our incident investigation, what happens after? Do we tend to punish people and blame them? Or we tend to establish corrective actions and whatever, based on whatever those corrective actions are, actually do things to try to prevent, prevent recurrence. So that's, that's a, 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 how would I say, that? an unscientific, let's say it that way, an unscientific assessment that I came up with uh, about this concept of pleasing the system. Now, part of this too, though, is workers themselves, frontline workers, because there's often, really good programs and processes with really good intentions that are perceived differently than they are in the field. And so, you know, like at some point in time, stop work authority. When's the last time somebody used stop work authority? And if, it, if they haven't, I mean, maybe that's a good thing because everybody's really well trained and on the same page and everybody's working perfectly all the time. Or maybe it's because they're scared to speak up for a variety of reasons. And so this, I think, it is a great way to determine how often we're pleasing the system, but also a great way to determine how empowered and how safe your workers feel to do things. So it's called testing the system is that concept.
Uh, it's always easy to, as I say, A, B, C, D, E, accuse, blame, complain, defend, and deny, make excuses. Easy to do those things. A little harder to be responsible for safety. That's why, by the way, in the next one, we'll start talking about uh, over-reliance on other people and things to protect us versus self-reliance. You got to be responsible for your own safety. So if you're at all interested, that will be the next focus of uh, this, this series of frontline fundamentals. But yeah, this is a good one to, to ask people. Number five, speaking of stop work authority, I exercise my stop work authority. Do I do that often? Do I do it sometimes or have I never done it? Job briefings, back to the quality of them, that mutual understanding, communication. I ask questions during job briefings and training sessions. Do I do that often, sometimes, or do I never do it? Continue working as usual when someone is observing my performance. I hope you start to see how these two things work together, right? If we go back to number one here, and I'm coming out to do an observation, and my whole goal is to find you doing something wrong, how comfortable am I going to feel working as I usually do? And if we're really going to have a good observation process, what has to happen is we have a mutually trusting and respectful relationship. I come out to do an observation. You keep working as normal. We have a conversation about it. And then we learn what was right, what was wrong, things that we need to continue doing, things that we maybe could do better. Uh, so those assessments are, I think, you, you certainly don't have to like print them out and do them. But I think it's a good thing to think about some of these individual line items. Um, you know, what happens? Number four is a great example. If I need additional resources, I've got a job that requires 14 line hoses and I've got 12 line hoses on the truck. What am I going to do in that situation kind of thing? Or I'm a crew leader and I realize in order to get the job done, we're going to need another person, which may cause us to lose money or time or whatever it may be. How's that going to be handled? Are we comfortable asking for additional resources? And that's a great way, I think, to help you gauge, are we pleasing the system or are we protecting the workers? And so I, I think in closing, it's probably worth going back to this concept of cave culture. Care about people, analyze incidents, Value safety, encourage reporting. Just like we said when we were talking about C5 safety leadership. If everything you do revolves around how much you care about people, and we define that as preventing harm and encouraging growth, everything we're talking about today takes care of itself. And I, I, I will stress again, the importance of pleasing the system. Systems are there for a reason. They need to be pleased. We need to document our job briefing. We need for our training records to be correct. And, and whatever based on training requirements, my training records should say, I've got all the training that I need. We need to be compliant. We need to please systems, but we can't stop there. True safety, the art of safety, involves focusing more on protecting workers, caring about people than it does pleasing systems. And I'll just say this real quick. Uh, thank everybody for being here. Thank you if you if you have bought the book and read the book. Uh, that's good. Uh, if you're reading the articles in Incident Prevention Magazine, please do that. Please continue uh, to come to these uh, every other month. Uh, we'll, we'll keep doing them as long as folks keep showing up and seem interested in it. 
Uh, and, and I just, I can't thank you enough for your time, attention, and participation today. So uh, 